Inside the recording studio, I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing great. This is actually our anniversary. It is. This is the anniversary episode, and just because it feels like the kind of birthday and special event that it should be, we have a special guest with us today, and that is Mr. George Leger. The third, how are you, George? I'm doing really, really good this morning. How are you? Ah, I'm great. I'm great. Very cool. It's good to have you with us, George. We're going to poke your brain a little bit and ask you some questions and um, find out, or for our listeners to find out about what you are about and what you've done and hopefully have some fun and, and learn a few things during the way. Cool. Yes. I'm, I'm very excited. Yes, yes, yes. And I just want to also quickly point out that there's going to be a special announcement in the middle of this where we normally have our sponsorship uh, information going on. So pay attention, please. Anyway, uh, to get started, George, what is your background in music recording? Oh, boy. Um, it's actually a lot of different things. Um, I started out when I was... Uh, really young recording and, and trying to make sounds on tape decks, reel to reel tape decks, sound on sound. Me and my brother uh, used to play around with that kind of technology. So, I mean, from the time I can remember, I was making music and playing with audio and playing with sound. And that just evolved from the sound on sound stuff to being in bands, to being in bands in school. And then eventually somebody told me about recording school and that was the beginning of the end of my life. <laughs> <laughs> the beginning of the end of your life. That's kind of well, a yeah, scary because, thought. Well, no, because since then it's been all about the music business. And I mean, literally it, it was such a shift in, in, in how my life path went. It was really, really unbelievable. I mean, you know, as I said uh, before, when we were talking, I had this life on, a nude beach in Vancouver where I, I was out there enjoying the sun all summer long and, and, you know, still doing music and stuff. But I mean, that's what I, I was just a beach bum. And uh, one of my friends told me about recording school, uh, that there was a recording school called the Institute of Communication Arts in Vancouver. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't, a school to record for me was like every dream I had ever had come true. And ironically, going to school was just like that for me. I loved it. I wish I'd had more money. That was the one thing I didn't have was cash. So Don't we all? You know, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I went to school, but I had to drop out because I just couldn't afford to continue to go and support myself at the same time. I didn't have any, um, any extra funding that I needed. So, But I did get enough to get started and take all those crazy ideas when I was a kid. And then once I got out of school, started up my own studio and that offered a whole bunch of other opportunities to do things like beta testing. Right. You know, it was really, when I started recording, we didn't have MIDI technology. It didn't Man, exist yet. You are a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I sure am. <laughs> um, it was really, uh, um, I mean, I remember trying to do tempo maps with the Simpty reader from Roland where we had to take this stupid box and we had to program in all of our tempo mapping. And then we had to run that into our Roland 808 drum machine just to have everything synchronized. And this is pre-MIDI. Oof. But then, but just pre-MIDI. So it was right as technology was shifting. 
And uh, that was a very good thing, a very fortunate thing for me because um, I got involved with one company testing one of the first multi-port MIDI interfaces that came out. And it was a failure. It never got released. But the company ended up going on to develop the Radar, which was a multi-track uh, direct-to-hard disk recording system. That, I remember that. still I, out. I, I actually know somebody that owned a Radar in one in a yeah. studio in LA. So I am familiar with that device. That's yeah. interesting that they went from MIDI uh, over to Radar technology. Yeah. So, so yeah. What, what timeline are we talking about, George, here? Now, I'm guessing we're... we're Early, early 80s, 80s early right? 80s in the recording stuff. Yeah. When I was 22. So that would have been, uh, 83. Okay. A 83 when I went to school, 84, when I started up going full time in the recording industry and started up my own studio. Right. Okay. So I want to jump back a little bit. There, there was a lot of information there, but I want to go back to when you said that you started, uh, from a passion of just recording and sound on sound, that, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember what it was about that process that, that was so appealing to you that made you just sort of fall in love with it for, for one of a better Because you could arrange. <laughs> I, could, I could arrange. I could arrange parts. I could play me playing guitar. Then I could play me playing bass. And I could play me playing drums because I'm a multi-instrumentalist, which is right. really fortunate for me. The true Renaissance man. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, of sorts. And uh, so it was, for me, that was the appeal of it. I didn't need to have anybody else to be involved, even though my brother was involved, Michael, who, you know, I, I loved. We were the, the proverbial brothers in bands and stuff through all of our youths. So. Sweet. Yeah, what about Mike? It was Michael and I playing in multi-track recording. Be, the ability to be able to record myself as doing as many different facets of a recording as I wanted to. Right. What What about sort of early musical influences at, at that point? Were you? Because I know you're at least Frank Zappa. 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 Big yeah. time Zappa. I heard Frank Zappa when I was 11 years old, and. The world was uh, never the same ever again. It, no, it was not. For me, it, for, for me, it wasn't. It, there was something about his music that was obviously so different from everybody else's. And I mean, honestly, I was even too young to understand what I was listening to. But right. I guess it was like him with Edgar Varese and his love of Edgar Varese's music. For me, it was Frank Zappa's music. When I first heard it, I was just a little kid. And there was something about it that sounded right. Okay. Just perfect right. It just, I loved it. It was funny. It was interesting. It was different than everybody else. But it made sense to me. Same thing with Prince when Prince came around. Prince came around when I was 18 or 19. And yeah. Dirty Mind was, I mean, I'd heard Prince's first two records, but Dirty Mind for me was the record that stood out as the one that was like, what is this I'm hearing? For the first time ever, I heard what I consider music. And eventually... <laughs> Eventually, everybody else would come to hear it, too. Three albums later, he would come out with Purple Rain and become a superstar. Sure. Right. Sure, sure. You started a studio up in Canada, you see. Mm-hmm. And? The first, the first one go? was George's Place. Um, how did it go? George's Place uh, moved around initially. It started in my bedroom. Uh, and then it moved into a uh, facility with the Pacific Songwriters Association. And what I used to do was do songwriters demos. So for 50 bucks, I would do your song. So you'd come in and you'd sing me your song. 
And I would do the drums and bass usually, and maybe some guitar. And then I'd have uh, hire a studio musician who you'd pay for. And they would come in and they would add some extra guitars, maybe a steel guitar. And then I'd hire a vocalist and they'd come in. So for your $200 demo, you'd end up with a really, really good high quality demo. That would take my day up and I'd hire two of my friends to come and do recordings with me. So that's kind of how I got started doing regular recording work and, and got some chops up. Because right. I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning. I mean, I had recording school behind me, which was really awesome because at least I knew how to mic a voice and, you know, how to work a compressor and what an EQ did and, you know, reverbs and delays and, you know, the basics of processing. Uh, you know, you learned all that stuff in school. So it was nice to have that under my belt, even when I only had an 8-track tape deck. Sure. Because I started out with a Fossex 8-track, then I had a Fossex 16-track, E16, and then G16. And then big, big MIDI rig. By the time I stopped my rig in Vancouver, that that had become, it went from George's Place, which was an eight track, to Utopia Parkway, which were two studios. We had 32 channels of ADAT in one room with a big, with Alan and Heath console that was run by my partner at the time, John Shep. Great guy, amazing recording engineer, man. This guy, I still don't know why he never went on. To become a bigger superstar, he did engineer one of the biggest albums, independent albums in our studio of all time in Canada, and uh, John was a great guy. So John was my partner. He was in one room. Me, I had a Pro Tools rig in the other room. So we were running a state-of-the-art Pro Tools eight-channel rig. This is way, way back as well. We also were the world test site for the Soundcraft DC2000 automated console. We also did the PC MIDI board. That was a whole other thing that we had. So we ended up having this state-of-the-art automated console. Soundcraft sounded fantastic, but it was uh, alpha, so it was a bad idea. Never put an alpha in a functioning recording studio. It's a bad idea. <laughs> what, what, what did, you know, just so people know why it's a bad idea. Why is it a bad idea, George? Well, because they would do things like one day they would send you an operating system upgrade disk and you'd pop it in and you'd run it and then your fader math would be different. So your fader would be, if you did a fader roll from one level to another level, it would be different on one day to the next day because the math had changed because they were trying to get the fader linearity correct. So this is kind of like modern day, like software updates. It's like, don't ever update in the middle of a project is what they say. But there's no way uh, because we were literally an alpha test site. So we had one of the only two boards in the world Mm. of this big, beautiful, I mean, it was $32,000 recording console. So we weren't messing around, right? This was a real, real console. So essentially you went from being like the modern day equivalent of Fiverr from your bedroom Right. to this full-blown wild studio using state-of-the-art gear that was being tested as you were doing it and creating problems yep. and headaches at that point. Yep, and and we were also running, you know, you we had four ADATs, so think about that. You're Oof. running four ADATs, that's, that's, you know, so we had that going. Uh, we also had a video room going, so we had a, um, so we had an avid media composer that was also broken, when we bought it. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> in other words, you were the modern day multimedia studio. <laughs> yes. Uh, we were very much a multi. We yeah. were right up there. State of the art, bleeding edge. 
you know, we were doing stuff like uh, the best quality 22K audio that you could do for a Mac so that when you listen to his ROM, CD-ROM, the dialogue and stuff sounded great. I mean, that's the kind of work we were into then. Because like any other business, the recording studio business works like this. You have your busy periods and then you have nothing. And that nothing can last three months. And you have to figure out some way to get business. So you have to do as many different kinds of work that you can. So some of our work was doing multimedia stuff for phone setup. So we would have a company come in that had a phone tree. So we would record all the dialogue for the phone tree and get all the files set up for them to send to the company that would set up all their phone tree. So we would do the phone tree recording. Sure. Uh, we would do multimedia dialogue for, uh, for CD-ROMs for uh, electronic arts. We did Madeline and the Puppet Show. So, Which well, was a st- really, really big CD, DVD, CD-ROM back in the day. Step Christopher back Plummer was Step- the vocalist, one of the voices on it. I ended up, Stephen, the guy from Sound of Music, Christopher Palmer, right? Is that his name? Uh, yeah, you know the old I, dude? I have to plead ignorance, yeah. Anyways, I, I his voice. I think you're right, it's Christopher Plummer. However, Plummer, let's- thank you. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So- one of the cool things about the Vancouver studio that we had, Utopia Parkway Music, the big one with the media multimedia stuff, is I did a lot of mastering at the time. Right. And that studio building, 2182 West 12th Avenue in Vancouver, had seven different recording studios in it. That's So impressive. if you can imagine, oh, it was great. We had every format between my studio, George's Place, there was Blue Wave was there, uh, Hipposonic was there. Uh, Hipposonic was a big uh, SSL console. Blue Wave was a Neve. And then they ended up having another Neve. So, I mean, we had some really big-ass, huge boards around. And then we had some smaller studios, and and we all supported each other. It was a really amazing community. I feel so blessed to have been part of that. We were there for 12 years. Yeah, great place to be. Out of curiosity, how do you go from doing that to winning a Juno? Because you have one, like, what is a... For American artists is uh, the equivalent of a Grammy in Canada is a Juno. Um, For the rest of the world, I apologize for not knowing what the equivalent would be for your particular country. (laughs) But the Juno Award is like the American Grammy. So how did you go about getting the Juno? Well, in Canada, if you're part of the, the, the production team, and that means either recording engineer uh, producer, band member, or mastering engineer, then you qualify for a Juno Award, and I qualify for a Juno Award because I mastered that record. Sweet. Uh, the record was by Paper Boys, and it was called Molinos. And I told, actually, Jody the story a little while ago, and I'd like to tell it again because I'm really proud of it. Basically, what happened is, in the mastering world, up until then, a lot of people would come in with references, and that's kind of limiting me as an artist, right? Because when you're mastering, you're trying to re... Well, you're trying to make a record sound as good as you can make it sound, sure. right? Mm-hmm. And in this case, they gave me a reference of a particular album that I won't mention the album. Uh, so <laughs> I spent the day... Well, it sound for their record and for that recording, it was not a very good reference. Sure. They picked a terrible sounding record to reference their record to. It wasn't going to work. And after spending an entire day doing it, it didn't work, really. Nobody was very happy when they left. And I remember the producer, John Webster, called me back and he said, look, you know, I've George, 
you know, in my experience, uh, I've worked with most mastering guys that, that, you know, don't really have references. They just use their ears. So I want you to use your ears. And that's what they ended up going with in the end was my ear version of their mastering. So I sat down, I remastered the whole album using my own sense of what I thought was going to be best for the record. And that's what they used. Imagine that so. using your ears. No yeah. kidding. Eh? Yeah, I, I really. That's a, yeah, <laughs> that, really. that's a really good lesson in there um, in the sense that because you need, when you mention references, and I think this is the same thing that people talk a lot about reference mixes and things when they're working on their productions, how everything needs to be comparable, right? Mm -hmm. You might love how, you know, the latest BT track sounds, right? It's, it sounds fantastic, awesome production. But if yep. you're doing um, like a modern black metal record, that's a horrible reference, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And the same thing goes for if you're playing, if you're going for like a hysteria, Def Leppard type of a sound, don't yep. reference, even though it's still Mutt Lang, don't reference Back in Black, you know? So, no, they do not sound the same at all. They've, wow. Yeah. Right. And it's, um, you know, so I think that that's something that, that, our listener can probably take away. It sounds so obvious when you yeah. say it, but you got to yeah, make no, sure you're, that you're in the you're, ballpark. You know? Yeah, you are totally right. And, and and it's a real struggle when you're a mastering engineer and people bring you references that are like that. And you oh, try and explain to them, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, but this isn't really going to work for your record. You know, here, let me, let me, let me show you what I can do with it. And you know, you spend an hour, an hour and a half trying to take their song and make it in magic and hopefully they love it. You yeah, know? yeah. I, it, it all goes back to the fact you have to trust the person that you're going to for a mastering situation. You have to trust that they know what they're doing with their gear. You have to trust that they know how to use their ears and you have to trust their judgment with your creation. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you are the mastering guy and, and they're not trusting you, that, as you say, creates problems. It can really, yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we've talked about before, Jody, where sure. that's where you know, the communication really comes into play, right? Oh, big time. You, you big really time. need to have, you know, when you're, whether you're the artist or you're the mastering or mixing engineer, you need to have that dialogue with a client of, first of all, what it is that they are expecting mm -hmm. and whether or not that is an appropriate or even realistic expectation. And then talk about, well, this, if it isn't a realistic expectation, talk about alternatives. Well, so, well, I think this might be appropriate for you for this or whatever it happens to be. So that that dialogue needs to happen or everybody's just going to be um, disappointed, I suppose. Exactly. So, so let me um, ask you one thing here. So now, obviously it sounds to me, George, like when you're working in the studio and you have this alpha board, when you're constantly getting updates and everything, um, that you yeah. got used to at a very early time in your career to problem solve the, and deal oh, with yeah. solutions. So I, I guess it, it was a pretty natural step, I suppose, for you to get into the whole tech support thing. Can you tell us a little bit mm -hmm. more how, how you started getting a foot in that camp as well? That's actually a really cool story. Um, my Let's first. Hear it. Tech client. Okay. So here I am. I'm working in my studio called George's Place in Vancouver. At this point, I'm with Pacific Songwriters and then we're downtown Vancouver in this little studio space. So it's a room, you know, a little office room. 
what happens is a professional songwriting team comes into my recording studio. One guy's name is John Webster. And John had written Heaven in Your Eyes with Loverboy and uh, Ann Wilson for okay. for that movie, the Top Gun. Oh, so, big hit there, right? Yeah, that, that was a huge hit. So John comes in. John wrote this song. And he comes in with Brian McLeod. Brian McLeod is co-written with a band called Chilliwack uh, in Vancouver. They had don't uh, a big, big hit record uh, and a, a lot of Canadian hit singles. Anyways, so they're in and they're writing in my studio and they leave. And about two weeks later at my house, I suddenly get a phone call and I'm sitting there with some friends and we're all gabbing away. And suddenly I'm like, everybody be quiet, be quiet. I'm answering this phone call. I'm talking to this person. Well, it was Brian McLeod and Brian liked my studio so much that he wanted my help in building or consulting with the design of my studio in his boat. Because he had a boat called Gone, Gone, Gone that he had received royalties from and that was his house so he wanted to put a studio in his house so my first consult my first ever tech gig was consulting with a hit songwriter with the recording equipment that i had in my studio which he loved he just loved my studio so much he was like it was perfect it was like a great little board everything worked i love it i need to have exactly what you have so basically that's how i got in the tech support business so so was consulting with him straight you not was it the soundcraft that went on a boat? No, 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 no. It was actually a Tascam. Oh, okay. It was, was a, a- yeah, Tascam, <laughs> uh, DCM two hundred. I think it was called. I'm just thinking because the fact, like a full size console board on a boat, that must be a big boat. <laughs> no, it, but it was a big boat. It was a big enough boat. I mean, this console was four and a half feet, five feet, three feet by five feet. Yeah, it was a pretty big console for the Tascam. You're saying. Yeah, for the Tascam. Yeah. yeah, it was a 20 input console inline, I think. Mine had custom been customized by the guy who had owned it before me. So I bought it from the music store. They'd gotten it as a trade from a hit song, another hit songwriter dude. And I bought it because it had been recapped and it sounded way better than the original factory board did, right? Sweet. So, of course, I had to tell this to this other gentleman who had his all done capped that way, too. But so that's how I got involved. Um, basically, that was one of the things. Um, I had a friend who worked for the company that did the multi-port MIDI interface, and they needed somebody who had experience. By then, I'd been running uh, multi-port MIDI interfaces by Mark of the Unicorn, because Mark of the Unicorn had released them, and Opcode had released them. So, I mean, I had experience running all this bleeding-edge technology right from the beginning. I had one of the first multi-track recording systems, an audio media card. Uh, then we had a Pro Tools card. Then we had an eight-channel Pro Tools system, which was like two, four channels put together. It cost $32,000, guys, for eight channels. <laughs> think yeah. about that. Think yeah. about that. Think about that. Yeah, for think eight about channels. that when you complain about how expensive something is today. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that wasn't for the computer either. That, no, that was, was just for the, the Pro Tools. The yeah. That was just for the cards and the hardware, the it cards is. and the software. Yeah, just thirty-two grand for that. The computer was probably five grand or four grand. It was a Mac CI. Remember Mac CIs? No. Really? Oh, no. geez. Okay, Sorry. I've aged myself again. Yay! <laughs> I mean, I remember the first Mac. I just don't remember the, the terminologies. Yeah. Well, the Mac CIs were the first ones that came out that were more like a box. Okay. It didn't come, it came with a monitor that you put on it. It came, it was like a, a, a desktop. Okay. So it was sort of like so what, there, what became the Performa series. 
Uh, no, it, but became was... the it became the Mac series. It was a, it was a Mac. Oh, yeah, the Macintosh CI is what it's called. So it's a Mac CI. It was the first one with cards uh, that you could buy. That was like a server. They also had the FX, which right. was the super server at the time. Mm. That was like the really seven thousand dollar computer. So you could get the CI, which was a small one, which was a box, or you could get the FX, which was like a PC design tower size. you know it's tower size right. yeah so the thing that the the takeaway immediately before we move on to the next question is that when you think about the fact that people bitch and moan about logic costing two hundred dollars with everything it comes with now uh, do you shake your head what do you do yeah i'm shaking my <laughs> head right now I'm, I'm like how anybody could complain about logic being anything less than the what i mean i paid Probably twenty five hundred bucks for Logic altogether. Back in the day, because I because I bought it, it back when it cost yeah. money, and at one point ESX was ESX was an add on. Yeah, all the Logic all was the an add on to get Pro was like a you know you had there were three different versions, so you could get get the platinum, the 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 silver the, and the bronze. And I yeah, was, I mean it was was it gold? Yeah, and, yeah, or gold and silver and gold, platinum, silver and yeah. platinum, something like yeah. that. Yeah, it was like oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, three it's, different it's versions. It's funny and... to hear you mention, you know, brands like Mark of the Unicorn. Well, Motu, obviously, but uh, like Opcode and things. Opcode. And, oh, <laughs> I miss Opcode. Studio Vision. What a great application that was. I mean, to this day, I still miss some of Studio Vision. It did things. It had an algorithmic little composition thingy that it did that was the just the most brilliant thing to use. It was, you could tell it how many bars you want and you, it would basically improvise little musical bits for you. And you could tell it, enter the variables and it would create these perfect little sequence bits for you that you could use in your music. <laughs> the original band like, in a box. <laughs> well, not, but it wasn't like that. It was more creative than band in a box. Uh, it was just, it was this little thing you could use it for. I mean, I used to use it all the time for creating percussion conga riffs that were more realistic than anything I could ever make up. Gotcha. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Anyways. Right. Yeah. Studio right. vision. Yeah. There we go. Um, so now that you're even more in, into the, uh, the tech support thing. So you have worked with uh, Barry Manilow. So can you tell yes. us a little bit how that came to be? Okay. So in order to talk about Barry Manilow, I need to talk about another gentleman first named Michael Lloyd. Okay, we'll okay. flip those two points on our script <laughs> yeah. there because we got Michael you have to yeah well. you kind of so have to because because Michael. Michael Barry comes through Michael so okay. who's Michael? Owner of Curb Records, right? Yes, he is actually. In two thousand four, I did a tutorial on Logic Pro. It was actually Logic Platinum at the time. Yes. So yes, way back it was the first training tutorial on Logic Pro that was ever done. So. That got me a gig working Wait, at West LA I'm Music sorry to in Vancouver. You there, George, but but you said Logic Six. Logic Six. So this was Apple Logic at this point. Where was it? Uh, no, it was eMagic. No, it was still. eMagic. It was still eMagic. But yeah, but Apple took over. That was Logic at Seven. Six. Uh, they took six over at seven. seven. Yeah. Are you sure? All right, I'm my. No, I'm not. Here, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to say that. It, well, but I'm going to say I did my tutorial in Logic Six, 
And okay. then I did it again in Logic 7, and I had to stop doing the one in Logic 7 because Logic 7 was such a bad initial version of a piece of software that I couldn't get it to run functionally well enough to make a tutorial. I would try and set up my tutorial movie, and I would do everything, and I would plan it all out, and then I would go back and I would shoot it, and it wouldn't work the same way. Things yeah. wouldn't work the same way. So after yeah. trying this for three weeks, I finally gave up in frustration. I told my publisher, I'm sorry, this piece of software, Logic 7, is not ready yet for prime time. It's still too much alpha for me to do a new tutorial. Yeah, so I, I put that one aside. So yeah. the point is, I did the tutorial. The tutorial got me in the door at West LA Music, a music okay. store in Los Angeles that caters to the famous and the rich with superstar people, you know, come to Los Angeles, come to West LA Music and, you know, work with the best in the business. And they are the best and were the best in the business until they decided to close their doors. So I ended up working there as one of their techs. And that's how I met Michael Lloyd. Michael owns co-owns Curb Records, biggest country and Western label in the world. Uh, but he's been a producer since the 60s and 70s. He was a child music prodigy. And recorded everybody from Led Zeppelin to Donnie and Marie to Leif Garrett, Sean Cassidy, David Cassidy. He did a lot of bubblegum stuff in the 70s. He did the Chattanooga Cats, which was a cartoon on Saturday mornings in the 60s. Nice. Um, and then uh, in the uh, 80s, he did Dirty Dancing. That was his big movie. And uh, he's, he's produced everybody... And everybody, I mean, you, you wouldn't believe it. If you look him up on the internet, Michael Lloyd, you'll be blown away. So anyways, I met Michael working for West LA Music, doing a big install of a piece of software. And over the three days that it took for me to install this piece of software, make sure it was working, we became friends. Just talking. Nice. Because that's kind of how it is sometimes when you meet the right people. Yeah. Well, you just don't shut three, up. It just goes going blah, 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 blah. And, 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 and it really does when you meet the right people. And Michael is the kind of person, I'm the kind of person that I always want to learn. Even today, I mean, I'm semi-retired. I still want to learn. I can never learn enough. Uh, yeah. Michael is the kind of person that is always happy to teach. If you're willing to be serious about it. So anyways, what happened is after three days, I asked if I could mentor with him. I said, let me work at your studio. I'll take care of your studio. And you just let me hang out. And he said, you can work at my studio and I'll make sure that you get paid. And, you know, you better do a damn good job or else I'll kick you in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and he's being literal about kicking you in the ass. It, well, Michael <laughs> Lloyd does not, Michael Lloyd does not tolerate fools, guys. This guy does right. not mess around. He is as serious as a fucking heart attack. Pardon my French. He is serious as a heart attack. He is, he doesn't mess around. He's been doing sessions since. Well, since the sixties, apparently. Yeah. But I, I'm talking, you know, big sessions, real sessions. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. okay. So anyways, how did I end up working with Barry Manilow? Michael ended up doing five albums with Barry Manilow, which I had the pleasure of working on all five records in different capacities. Some of them were, one was a live album, which I did a bunch of technical work on. The Greatest Love Songs of All Time is one of my personal favorites um, that I was involved with where we got to work with orchestras at Capitol Records. So I'm at Capitol Records. 
with a full orchestra, Barry singing uh, was a, one of those pinch me moments that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Um, and yeah, I had the fortunate opportunity that whenever Michael needed anything for anybody, he would just call me up. Hey, you know, uh, one day it was a Sunday afternoon. He's like, come on down. I got an emergency. We can't get Pro Tools running. Something happened. So I come down to the studio and I end up fixing the problem and uh, meeting Brian Wilson. Because they were oh, doing wow. a Beach Boys session at his house. And Brian Wilson nice. said, thank you, man. You're my hero. It was like, <laughs> what? You know? So those are the kind of things that happen when you're associating with somebody like Michael Lloyd. So fortunately, because I knew Michael, I it, it opened up all sorts of opportunities to different people. Uh, meeting people in session that I would have never met. Judith Hill. I don't know if you know who Judith Hill is, but I met Judith working with him before she knew Prince. Uh, and then went on to, you know, win a, a Grammy for what twenty feet from Stardom, oh, Superstardom, nice. yeah, the movie. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the so, immediate takeaway on all of this is that uh, one, you never know when you are working with somebody who else they might know, and they will bring in to introduce you to if you are cool and not a complete asshole in the studio or in absolutely in other environment with musicians. But before we get on with any more of George's stories with people that he has met through his illustrious career, we're going to take a quick moment for a break with a word from our sponsors. All right, George, we're back. We're going to start talking about, you know, there's another band in your history that some people love to hate, and that band is known as Nickelback. What is yeah. your association with those guys? Nickelback. Uh, Nickelback came into Vancouver uh, uh, as 20-year-old hungry kids. I mean, I'm not, I'm talking hungry, but professional. Anyways, they recorded at a studio in Vancouver, and the studio owner at the time was a friend of mine, and they came down. I mastered their first album, Curb. So we had a really, really great time. I got to know uh, Chad very well, and uh, Chad, even then, was... He produced... He's went on to produce other bands in Canada since, and he was already... Had proper New York management lined up at the time, he was already producing other bands at the time, and I was working with him mastering some of these other bands as well. So got to know them. Yeah, serious, serious guy. I knew from the moment I met him that if anybody was going to make it, he was going to make it. Yeah. It's like ding, ding, Because he was, he was, well, they, they had the songs. They were young. And I mean, even, there was still three years before Silverside came out Silverside up or whatever the 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 record that came out on 911 by the way mm. um that that record with how she reminds me came out on 911 so it was about 3 years after I knew them that they ended up putting out that record and i mean i wasn't surprised at all not at all and i mean you know i love their music i think he's a great songwriter i don't understand why people pick on them at all i think it's completely stupid yeah i, I have to <laughs> echo that i i it's one of my sort of like pet peeves I have. Um, I'm not a huge fan, but that's not the point. But I think they get way more shit than anybody deserves. Oh, and oh, I totally think people, ridiculous. people, the people that have strong opinions about it often don't know why they do. It's just like, <laughs> oh, you're supposed to hate this band, right? Yeah. I hate Nickelback. Why do you hate Nickelback? Uh, because I hate Nickelback. Well, maybe that's it's not because a reason to hate Nickelback. They, maybe it's the name that they don't like Nickelback. Why would you want your Nickelback? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a, 
coffee house reference, right? <laughs> no, yeah, I, I believe it is. I think that's how it they is. Got I think there. so. Yeah, they, they, used to, they used to sell coffee, right? That was their day jobs, and when they came in, I and wouldn't got be their surprised. Coffee, they always get a nickel back. It was, it was like two ninety five. So ah, hence gotcha. the name of the band. Yeah, uh -huh. um, but th there are a couple of things I want to touch on and bring up again here, George. That uh, before we move on, but a few things that strike me with with your story here and that I think is things that, that people should probably take to heart. Now, during this last 40 minutes here, you mentioned not only Nickelback, you mentioned Barry Manilow, you mentioned Frank Zappa. Now, that's a pretty eclectic bunch <laughs> of, of artists, right? So yes, sir. The thing I think to take away from that is that you're either a lover of music or you're not. So don't pigeonhole yourself. Be open to different things because there's always something to learn from other music that you might not listen to on the daily. Mm -hmm. right? So yes. I think that's something. And be open to those opportunities. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up again is, is opportunities. Your path has taken turns. Like when you started out, you probably didn't imagine, hey, I'm going to start this so I can get into tech support. You know, no. it, it's the love of music. But when opportunities- It's also the love right, of doing tech support though. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm sure that's a, that's it, also a whole specific yeah, job in itself and, and, the, right. and the love of the puzzles of it. Absolutely. But, but I'm saying that for people to be open to different opportunities and try things out, that mm -hmm. you may not have set out to do, but you never know what it might lead, um, mm -hmm. and all of those things. So, so I think that those are things that are important to kind of hear. Where and also, obviously, like you mentioned, Jody, there when you never know who you're going to work for or who's going to be in the tertiary there of, of who you might work for. So you always do your best, whatever the situation is, right? And you and actually, there was one thing I wanted to mention in here too, which is really important about when you're in an opportunity to be in a situation about this stuff is to try not to prove to anything to anybody. <laughs> Don't try to prove you're super to anybody. Just sit there and be a fly on the freaking wall and observe and don't try and prove. One of the, the biggest mistake I ever made was to try and prove to Michael that I knew something. Mm, right. In so session, the, the, in the, session with other the, people there. It's like my job wasn't to be to say anything to anybody about anybody in that session. I'm there as an observer. I have to sit there and observe and learn. I shouldn't be trying to tell anybody what to do. So and I guess that, was a, that mistake. A couple of the lines that come to mind for something like that is one, don't speak unless spoken to. And two, let your work do the talking. Don't let your mm -hmm. mouth do the talking in that regard. Yeah. Especially in that situation. Well, yeah, when you got guys of that kind of caliber coming through and you're just yeah. there, it's like, that's that's a huge caliber to be sitting yeah. in with, right? Yeah. So. I said something once in session and Michael took me aside and just was like, don't you ever say anything again in session? Ever. Okay. Or else you won't be here. Okay. No problem. I felt the burn enough in that one, probably five seconds to know to never do it again. Sure. Yeah. Never, ever, 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 ever do it again. Yeah. Yeah. All so, right. Lesson learned quick. That's another thing. Yeah. Learn fast and don't change on that. <laughs> Always be learning. So, George, 
since we've run a little bit on your career here, let's think about something a little bit more technical on this end, not just the tech support stuff, but what would be your desert island piece of gear that you cannot live without at this point? Uh, you got to give me at least two because one's not enough. <laughs> okay, and two, uh, the two the two would be a laptop, a Mac laptop, and uh, and an Apollo interface. Those two items are your like that's you can't yeah, live without I, those. You gotta two you gotta give me you gotta give me a laptop to record on, and you gotta give me a Universal Audio Apollo interface, and their plugins that go with it for me to record with because those yeah. are my main set of tools. I mean, I, I use the, those. The list is growing now. I, the I, list I, is I, growing. You know, the <laughs> funny thing here is that I just I have to feel sorry for Chris because he's. He's he's in short company on this side of things because you and I are in that same boat of like, you know, give me a Mac computer with an Apollo interface and their plugins. Yeah, that's and all I'm I good. need. And Chris yeah, is I'm like, good. but 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 what about Slate? No, no. <laughs> what about no, no Slate stuff is good. Days, you'll They're see all the good. It's you just, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here's I have Slate. No, you know, I, I'm, I have sound Jody, toys. Jody's I have everything. I, I really don't care. Yeah. No, no, the, the point I wanted to just kind of bring up the, like that kind of like, first of all, I think we three know each other a little bit too well to have like a serious conversation on this, <laughs> but, um, the, so any other interface, George, without laptop, you're out, right? You can't do it. Right. Oh no! There's uh, lots of other interfaces I could use. It, it, exactly. I mean, that that was my point that I wanted to make. Just like but these oh, are yeah. the ones that he's saying he can't. These are live the ones without. that I can't. Yeah, these are my choices on a desert island. Yeah, so, but yeah. I. But you know what? Give me a PC and Pro Tools. I mean, I don't care. I could yeah. use either or either or. Give me, give me, give me uh, Cubase. That's fine too. Give me yeah. Ableton Live. That's fine too. I mean. They're all similar enough that I can jump onto e any one of them, and they're all creative enough that usually, I mean, I wrote half an album on Reason. Yeah, because I found Reason. It was easy to start in Reason, but then I wanted to have more real time control than I had in Reason, and Logic offered me more control, so I I moved it from one platform to the other platform about halfway through. Yeah. You know, because uh, Logic before, is my uh, Logic is my guitar. It's you know, my lo Logic is my you know my guitar. It's my main. It's act. your instrument. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Chris, you want to ask the next question? Yeah. Um, biggest lesson you've learned through your career? Always be positive yeah. and encouraging. Yeah. Always be positive and encouraging. People can achieve more than they think they can in the studio, especially with the technology that we have. And I'm not saying using uh, auto-tune or devices like that. I mean, just using a technique like a composite vocal, you can take a vocal track, get somebody to sing it four or five times, and then just take the best bits of that and don't even tune them, but just take them and then listen to them. And you're going to get a performance that's better than what that person can sing to begin with. And they'll be able to do a better version. When they learn, they're comped vocal. Sure. It's, there's a psychological thing that happens to people when they hear themselves. Uh, anyways. Yeah, no, I, I was, think that, that's a really I, interesting I point. It, and I have to um, – this reminds me of, of a story that actually you and I had together, George, because you – ended up mastering an album that I did it was the first sort of production album that I did. 
uh, for a local artist, and I had done the mixes, and I was I was fairly fresh, let's say. And I remember you telling me that this sounds good, Chris. You can do this. And I don't think I've ever thanked you for that, but that that oh. gave me sort of like the encouragement to kind of. Oh shit! Maybe I can actually do this. So thank you, George. Thanks for that. But oh. but that that just that that being positive is uh, now being positive as well. Like it, it doesn't mean now I'm not. I don't want to put words in your mouth here. But it also doesn't mean sort of like just lying to somebody just to make them feel no. good. No, 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 you don't want right. to. I, I'm not. I, I'm not into blowing smoke. Yeah, my career. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. No, no, it's not. It's not about that at all. Um, I mean, we are sensitive people. We are yeah. emotional people. We're in an emotional business that is unlike any other. And when we're recording, we are literally opening our souls and our spirits to the world to see. And it's one of the most intimate and challenging things for people to do. And yeah, they deserve to be supported while they try and do that. I don't want to support somebody. I'm not going to lie to somebody and say, oh, you're singing like Celine Dion when they're not. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Because I've had yeah. people come to me and say, I sound like Celine Dion. And I have to tell them in a very kind way, no, you know, you're you. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. You know, a, I, I got well, because sometimes you is, I mean, people, some people hate Neil Young. But if you listen to Neil Young, he's got a totally unique style and he ends his notes in pitch and blah, 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 blah. But some he's, people think the guy can't sing. I tell you right now, Neil Young can sing and he can also not sing, much like um, Bob Dylan, you know, who sometimes chooses to sing. I mean, Lay, Lady, Lay, what a beautiful song and what an incredible vocal. And then you take any other Bob Dylan song and you lay lay lady lay beside it and you go, why didn't he do that for the rest of his career? <laughs> well, he had a motorcycle accident and he busted his voice. But besides that, yeah. Besides that. So what advice, what would you universally give to all the listeners out there to say, this is like my biggest piece of advice other than your be positive? I don't know. I, I, I still have to stand on be positive because that everything okay. comes down to that. Everything comes down to that. It's like, if I don't feel good in the studio, then I can't do a good job. If, if I can't convince other people to have fun and to be open and to be free in the studio, then they can't be creative and can't find their creative potential. And it's, to me, it's all seems to be about that. So... I don't know. I, I, th th those are the only words I can think of. And even, even you know, the biggest lesson learned, always be positive and encouraging when in the studio, keeping negative comments out of creative process as much as possible. You know, because the, and the second part of that, keeping negative comments out of the creative process as much as possible. I mean, I haven't said that part of that statement, but that's what I wrote down because sometimes somebody's trying really, really hard. And I remember in the past, I would be, challenging to them i'd be trying to push them another way instead of being supportive uh, just come on you can do better blah 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 which is a, a it's a, almost like a backhanded compliment you know you can do better <laughs> yeah i think we've you got know? another take in there you know or, or, well that's that's not so bad it's, you know let's keep going is always a good one and and you know having another but yeah it's 
negative comments can kill somebody. If 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 I, I've I've said something offhanded before that's just totally uh, deflated somebody's uh, self and totally unintentionally. So yeah, it's really that was the other thing. And I learned those two things from Michael. I mean, right. I watched that guy in the studio with the biggest superstar session players in the world to a young woman who's just learning how to sing professionally. And he's working with her because he's helping another producer out teaching somebody how to work in a recording studio. Sure. You know, and even then he's being gentle and supportive. And, and I mean, these kids are really can't sing at all. You know, they're, they're not, they're, you know, I mean, I, why is he even there? Well, he's there because his, he's trying to help other people become better. And he, he's, you know, all these guys have that also that side of them. They, they, they're, they tend to want to help young artists if there's opportunities to help them. Sure. Uh, know, so so anyway, there's a quick follow-up to that. that question that I would like to ask you. Have you ever been okay. accused of changing something on an artist recording when you haven't? Never. Interesting. Never. How would once. you, how would you react to that then? I would if, if laugh at them. <laughs> I, I, I would laugh at them. I would say, why, why would I do that? Sure. Yeah. No, I've never had that happen. Uh, never. I've, I've accidentally record recorded over a part before. In fact, this one song I had, had a 12 string guitar part that for whatever reason on my Fostex 16, I kept hitting the wrong track. And I mean, I raced that stupid 12 string part over and over on this one song. <laughs> so, so you'd record it, erase it on accident, record it again. I, I'd, record it, it again. I'd, I'd record it and we'd be going to do something else. And I'd just be space getting it. And I'd go put it in record and then da -da 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 -da, punch it in. And, oh no, not again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's almost my as friend bad Brian as Smith. An my my friend, yeah. Oh boy, no! Oh, I did boy, that I'd... once. I, I was oh, helping no. out a buddy of mine in the studio and oh. accidentally erased all the guitar parts. Oh, oh. for the oh. entire album. Oh, no. <laughs> ouch! Yeah, ouch. no. It, it. I. Well, when I came home oh, no. in that regard, when it happened, he was in tears, and then I explained know. what was happening, and then it was like, oh. Oh my! Uh, I, you know, obviously, I felt oh. extremely bad because you know you you'd hate to fuck up that hard. The interesting thing about it is, after all the guitars were re-recorded, having been replaced at that point, he actually thanked me for it because he said that the end result was actually much better, Be better. than the original uh, version. Yeah. And yeah, that that's the one time where I made such a gigantic boo-boo that it was like, oh, so that's- Oh, you. I have gigantic boo-boos. Oh, dude. Oh, <laughs> dude. Oh, you, you want to hear my gigantic boo-boo? What's the biggest gigantic boo-boo you had besides erasing a 12-string guitar track? Oh, this is really, you're going to love this one. Mm. You're going to love this one. So, Barry Manilow, greatest love songs of all time, right? It's Christmas. Mm. Yes. We're getting ready. Now, I have to take that record- that's on Pro Tools, and I have to bounce out the whole record. It's the mm -hmm. stems. Sure. Okay? Now, there's some auto-tune on it. Okay. And it's corrected and da-da-da. Or no, was it auto-tune or was it Melodyne? No, it was Melodyne. Okay. So well, we use Melodyne. There's correction going on, yeah. There's right, pitch correction. but Melodyne, okay, now Melodyne at the time put its pitch correction information on the internal hard drive. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So if you wanted to recall the song, you had to move the data from the internal hard drive and you had to put it on the session drive. Right? Yes. Right. In order for them to be able to open up that session at any time in the future. Well, much to nobody's knowledge, that wouldn't have worked. But as soon as you did that, what happened was Melodyne went and started to refer to the audio that now was on the hard drive, not on the system drive, and there were weird little pops started to show up. Uh Uh-oh. On my lead vocal. Mm. All of Barry's lead vocals had pops in them because the the, the data had been moved from one file to... Right. I had to... It took me three days to fix it over Christmas. Yeah. I think it's a reference referencing issue with Melodyne. Boy, it, man, I'll tell you right now. I'm right, right then there, Michael Lloyd proved that I was an asset to him because he didn't fire my ass and tell me to get the heck away. Because you figured it, it was out. A, no, I, well, I figured it out and I made it right. Ah, there you go. Yeah. And he knew I would do that. He knew I would never abandon him. It, I did the mistake. I knew I, he's told me not to do it. Mm-hmm. But I, I insisted doing it because it was the only way it was going to ever work. Well, I didn't know that it was broken. I don't know if he knew it was broken. Maybe he did, and he didn't know to tell me that. Sure, which is possible. Michael's not—he's not—he's not angry. He's not that kind of person. He would never be manipulative like that, right? So it was obviously something that. Ha- Anyways, so yeah, biggest lesson learned, man. It's just like yeah, things can screw up in your face so bad. And you just got to swallow your pride and you got to put your hands down. You got to go, okay, what can I do to fix it? And then you just got to get to work and fix it. And, and, and we had to do, I had to fix that or they weren't going to get paid for the record. Well, and there it is. So the big lesson to take away from there is if you fuck up, Uh, own up to it and then fix the damn thing, fix it. So, and with that, uh, I think we're ready to float on out of this episode. Right, Chris? I think so. Thank you so much, George, for being a part of this. I hope everybody's cool. enjoyed this, listening to it as much as Jody and I have, no doubt. So thank you. Thanks. I hope it's fun. Yes. So with that being said, why don't we jump into our Friday finds and we start with Chris. My name is Chris and I have a problem with amp sims. Uh, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I... Uh, you know, I'm a Soldano player. I have my old Soldano. And Neural DSP came out with an amp sim that emulates the uh, Soldano SLO 100. And I was playing around with that this week. And I don't need another amp sim. I have more than I need. <laughs> uh, but I really, really liked it. I, I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't played any amp sims that have actually modeled the Soldano mm. uh, to this extent. So Neural DSP, uh, the Soldano, is, has Neural. to be my, my find of the week. Nice. My Friday find. What about you, Jody? What, what did you discover this week? My discovery this week has to do with Pandora, the streaming system. And this is probably not uncommon knowledge, but they do have a situation for artists and label managers and such known as the amp system that allows you to go in. You can record uh, radio drops and things of that nature, which they you then associate with particular songs and they will 
automatically rotate those things into playlists of where your music is being performed. And you can be like some big name artist on a giant radio station doing like, hi, I'm Sting. And you're about to listen to my song, blah, 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 kind of thing. And then That's it will cool. play in front of your music. And then you can do little advertisements and things of that nature. So the Pandora amp system is pretty cool. And if you are digitally distributing your music, it's probably a good idea to jump and grab your artist profile on Pandora to be able to do this kind of stuff to promote yourself. And let's put George on the spot. I agree. Mm -hmm. George, do you have a Friday find or something you have found this week that is beneficial in some way to musicians or recording engineers? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, you're putting me on the spot entirely. I can't think of anything because I haven't been, I've just been recording with the stuff that I currently have. Luna. Luna. What about Luna? What's the new version going to have in a couple of days? Uh, it's going to have templates. There you go. Yay. Yes, Luna will have finally have templates, which is really, really nice if you're having, you know, doing mixing or uh, on their show, they were doing hip hop sessions where they were able to import a track and have everything ready to go so that, yeah, super speed. So yeah, if you're like Luna, that's coming. All right, there's George's Friday Finds. And while we've still got your attention in this extra long episode of ours, go to our website and leave us a review at insidetherecordingstudio.com forward slash review. We now have two sites that you can do that on from that link. Or you can go to insidetherecordingstudio.com and sign up for our email list. And you can be like our current winner on our next giveaway. You'll also get rem weekly reminders about the Tuesday tips that we do, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. In addition to that, if you would like to send us an email at goldstar at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the phrase, George, it's not really a phrase, it's the word, you might get something really cool back in your inbox. And if you have a topic of suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us using the contact form on our website at insidetherecordingstudio.com and it will likely become a future episode. And with that, I will say, see ya later. See you, Jody. See you, George. Thanks for being Bye, here. Bye, everybody. Thank have you for having me. It was fun. <laughs>